Amen. It's always uh, an awesome day to celebrate baptism. Um, makes me go back in my own mind and think about and remember my baptisms. I've, <laughs> I've actually been baptized four times. Um, some of you have been baptized multiple times too. So uh, two of those times were in the Jordan River in Israel just, just to, for fun. But uh, when I was uh, 19... I uh, came back from college my first semester, and I asked my dad uh, if I could be baptized a second time. Um, I grew up kind of like a lot of people, uh, and unlike most people, which is that uh, I grew up in the church. How many of you grew up in the church? Raised and brought to church uh, every week, um, and yet um, the difference for me was my dad was the pastor. How many of you have a dad as a pastor? <laughs> couple of you do. Um, and you know that there's a little bit of a, a struggle there um, when, when your dad is the pastor. Um, but the thing for me was I accepted Christ, you know, technically when I was 12, like we were supposed to, got baptized when I was 12, like you're supposed to. Um, but um, I kind of was doing my own thing. So I had a little bit of faith, but a lot of bit of rebellion. And uh, so that's how we're all alike. Um, and so what happened was in college, I actually had an experience where I saw the reality of um, people my age living for Christ in an authentic way. It was kind of the first time I'd really seen that. And it showed me that I needed Christ in my life in a way that I hadn't really had before. I had, I had this belief that God was real and Jesus was his son, and, and I kind of understood that in a technical way. Mentally, I, I believed it, but I didn't have a relationship with God. And so after that semester, um, I had my faith confirmed, a relationship began with, with the Lord, and so I asked if I could be baptized again. And uh, in the same church, the same baptismal, my dad, you know, did the baptism um, but here's the thing for me, um, that it was important for me to be able to show and declare to the church and to my family and to, you know, the community, basically, that there really was a difference in my life, that I had really changed. And, and it was a humbling thing, because what I was saying was that uh, I was repenting of my past, uh, I was I was declaring that I had messed up and that I wanted to be on the right path. I wanted to let people know that there was something, you know, authentically happening there. Um, and so baptism is a humbling experience. It, it's a uh, a moment where you're basically saying to the congregation, to the public, to the world, to your family, to all your friends who who come, and um, that. Your life before Christ was messed up, and it was uh, God's intervention into your life that changed things, and you want people to know that there's a change. Um, baptism is a, is a very strange kind of thing that we do. We, we do it out of obedience to what God's Word says. The Word in uh, the, the Bible, baptism, is is the Greek word baptismo, and it just means to immerse. And so when you um, immerse, you think about this in three different ways, okay? The first thing is that uh, you are immersing uh, the person into 
um, this sense of, of faith that when we accept Christ, here's what we understand. There was a law that God had given to creation, to the world, and said that in order for people to have a relationship with God, we needed to somehow obey this law. Man couldn't do it. We were, it was impossible for, for humanity to be able to actually do that. And so what he did was he fulfilled the law through his son, Jesus. He sent one person to live a perfect life so that you and I uh, could have a perfection that we don't actually earn. So this is what we understand about what this whole thing means, is that I can't be perfect. Anybody ever feel like you can't be perfect? God solves that, that issue by being perfect for you. But then, see, that's not quite enough. So there's also a sacrifice that has to happen. And what happened was that God sacrificed his own son, Jesus, on the cross. And when he did that, the blood of the sacrifice was poured out for the forgiveness of sins, what the Bible says has to happen. And on the cross, God put all of sin on Jesus. He took that payment. He took that punishment. And then when we accept Christ, what we're saying is that God has, has given the payment for me, and I receive that as a free gift. And so when I put my faith in Jesus, what I'm saying is I accept what God has done for me. I can't pay enough. I can't do enough. I can't sacrifice enough. I can't do anything that is actually going to earn my way into a right relationship with God. All I can do is receive it. So I receive that perfect life and I receive that perfect sacrifice. And when I do that, I am declaring to the world that something has transitioned, um, that what Jesus was perfect and what I was imperfect have swapped places. So God took that imperfection, he put it on the cross and he took Jesus's perfection, and he put it on me. So what baptism is, is an immersion into a new life. So when Seth baptized uh, all four people this morning, he said, uh, you're buried with Christ and you're going to be raised to a, a new life. So you're immersed into faith or you're immersed into this new life. Um, and it also means that you're immersed into a cleansing. Baptism is a cleansing. It's a washing. It's a removal of, of sin. But we understand this is a, a symbol of something that happened because I have faith, not because of the thing that actually just happened. That, that event just now, a few minutes ago, didn't save anyone. It wasn't the thing that saved those four people. It was a proclamation of what had already happened, that they accepted Christ, they're saved, and they want to profess that. But they're cleansed and washed and pure and perfect in the sight of God because of what Jesus did for them. It's also an immersion into um, the entirety of God, immersed into his life. So what happens in, a, in a, an immersion is that every part of you gets wet. And what that is a symbol of is the fact that you have now become completely immersed into the life of God. So when that happens, here's what we're going to see is that uh, you've now positioned yourself very differently in the world, okay? What you've said is, I'm changing teams. 
I've been on the side of the world. I've been on the side of myself, on the side of Satan, on the side of evil and sin. That's where I was before, and now I am going to be on God's side. What that means is that you're engaging yourself in a battle. Now, now you are positioning yourself to be at odds with your old nature. You're at odds with the world around you. You're at odds with an enemy who seeks to interfere with your life. But the powerful thing and the great thing is that who's, who's on your side? Can we say it a little bit stronger than that? Who's on your side? So if God is for you, who can be against you? And we have a victory that's been guaranteed, been promised, been offered to us through Jesus Christ, um, and we're going to live that victory out, but we're going to live it out in the midst of turmoil. And this is what we're seeing consistently in our lives, is that we're, we're positioned differently, but we're still dealing with trouble, pain, doubts, fears, enemies, and yet we've been given all the tools we need uh, to be victorious. And so let's stand as we read God's Word. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start here in verse 10, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Usually when we go through the armor of God, we go through all the different pieces of armor. This time, I want to spend our time really focusing on the uh, initial um, the command or the, uh, the encouragement to stand strong in the Lord, what that looks like, what that means, okay? And so what it says is, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over, the, uh, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And Father, we want to stand on your promises. We want to stand in this new life that you've given us, Lord. We pray for your spirit to empower and enable and help us, Lord, through um, the different uh, turmoils, pain, difficulties, stresses, um, doubts, and fears that we all face, Lord. But we thank you that you've given us confidence and you've given us peace. You've given us the power of your spirit, Lord, to be able to understand your word, to be able to have fellowship with you, uh, to withstand any attack, Lord, to withstand any, anything that any weapon formed against us, Lord. It, it, the word says it won't prevail. It cannot. And so we thank you, Lord, that you've given us uh, the full armor. You, you've protected us. You have uh, placed us in a, in a different place. In fact, your word says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Lord. When we put our faith in Jesus, uh, we are different. Mind, body, spirit, Lord, we are, we are preserved and we are saved and we are ready for something different. We are seen differently. We live differently, Lord. We understand things through your eyes, and Father, we pray that we would begin to um, really dwell deeply into that, that we would trust your Spirit to give us uh, more and, and new enlightenment and understanding, give us more strength, help us to be the witnesses that you've called us to be. Thank you for the testimony that we've seen this morning. Lord, whether we're um, 
beginning a, a new journey with Christ or, or we're finally committing ourselves to uh, outwardly expressing that through baptism after years and maybe a lifetime of following Christ, Lord, we thank you that we can all testify to your goodness, your power, and your strength. And Lord, this morning, I pray that you would grow faith, build faith, Lord, in each of us, Lord, that we might follow you the way that you want, the way that we need to, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to focus in on one, one word here in particular. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against these schemes of the devil. And so that word schemes, like I just said uh, about baptism, um, it's, it's a Greek word. It comes from the Greek because the New Testament was written in Greek. And so just for your understanding, in case you're not uh, fully aware of, of what happened here, the, uh, the, the Bible written in Greek is because the language of the day was Greek. It was the international language. It was a language that whether you spoke any other language, you also spoke Greek because I, I'm listening to a hum, I think, of the fans. But uh, there's, a, there's this issue that God wanted to make sure that his word was going to be understood, read, and listened to to people all over the world. Whatever language that they spoke, they also spoke Greek. And so uh, it was written in Koine Greek rather than Classical Greek. It was the common language of the day. And so we translated into English... Um, and we get these words kind of mixed up. We have to interpret them, and, and we have to understand these words. And so one of the words is schemes. Now, if I say schemes, now, do you think that that's positive or negative? Okay, if I say I have a money-making scheme, are you, like, ready to jump on board with, with my plan? Or do you think that's probably going to be immoral, and, and very likely it's going to be illegal, Right? The, the word in Greek is methodia, okay? Which, what does that sound like to you? A method. We translate it schemes, not necessarily a bad way to translate that word, um, because we're talking about the devil and the way that he plans and the, way that, and his, the methods that he uses. And so inherently, the devil's methods are going to be uh, deceitful, dishonest, lying, manipulative, etc. So we understand that, that his methods are, are probably, it's not a bad way to say that they're schemes, but what happens is when you translate that word, methodia, into the, our English word schemes, is that in the human mind, okay, most of our minds, we think that a scheme is something that we would easily detect, right? Because we're so smart, we always know the difference between a lie and the truth, right? Anybody ever just feel like, yeah, I, I point out a lie easy. I, I understand lies. I know lies. I, I know when people are lying, when they're trying to get at me, when they're manipulating me. I know it. I see it I, from a mile away, right? You feel that way? Most people do. And so when we say schemes, most people feel like, well, if the devil's scheming, I'm going to recognize it. And so it kind of almost is an unfortunate way that we've translated that because we think that we couldn't possibly be fooled by the devil. And yet, we are constantly fooled by the devil. This entire world seems to, the majority of the world is, is fooled by the lies and the manipulation of our enemy into all kinds of doubts, fears, um, 
calling things good that are evil and evil good. You know that in Isaiah, he, he prophesied that that was going to be the case, that we would call things that are bad good and things that are good bad. And what are we seeing today? That that very thing is happening all over the place. That the minority of the church, I hope the minority of the church, um, seems to also be fooled by the devil's schemes because we're so full of ourselves that we think that we would know when, whenever he's, he's at work. And the reality is that if we were to call it methods, the methods of our enemy, then I think that we would actually be much more prepared to deal with the kinds of things that he's bringing our way. Okay, so the methods of our enemy are, and I've talked about these over the last couple of weeks, okay? But it begins with what Jesus says about Satan in John chapter 8. He says that he is a liar and the father of lies and that lying is his native language. And that points back to the fact that Satan lied to Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, he lies to Eve. He tells her that uh, you will not surely die. He, he tells her a bold-faced lie. She believes the lie and so what happens is that she is deceived into uh, doing what she is not necessarily naturally uh, prone or, or inclined to do, it's to go against God and do what she wants to do. But he's a liar, and he's going to fill the world with all kinds of lies. And so the, the fact that he is going to continue to deceive, uh, this is how he works in people's lives. Now, so that's the first thing that he does. He's a deceiver. Secondly, we see that he is, his name means that he is the enemy. And so Satan means enemy, devil means that he is um, the adverse, or that he is the accuser. And how he accuses, he accuses God to man. And this is how he began to work in Eve's uh, life. He said that, um, did God really say, undermining the word of God, and beginning to accuse God and bringing into people's minds this idea, is God real? What's the biggest question that people have today? Is God real? Does he exist? There's one thing that's going to prevent people from having faith is the idea that, well, I don't really know if God is real because I can't see him. We want more evidence. We want to make sure that we understand that if he's, he's really God, that he's He's going to appear, and he's going to reveal himself, and he's going to show himself, and he's going to confirm these things. And what faith does is it steps into a place where you say, God, without having all my questions answered, and without having all the evidence that I really think that I need, I'm going to believe and trust you. And what happens, and I can testify to this, can confirm this over and over and over, and so can you, as soon as you step into saying, God, I'm going to trust you, what he does immediately is he confirms your faith. But he, he requires and he desires for us to step into that with the first step, to meet him there. Anybody confirm that? He's confirmed it over and over and over. And you need confirmation along the way, and he continues to give it. He continues to show you and reveal himself and to meet you where you're at. And we have all kinds of stories about how God does that in our lives. But he's accusing God to man, and then he's going to accuse man to God. And so what he does is he tells God, um, in the throne room of heaven, somehow uh, Satan has uh, been given this ability, this access to uh, 
uh, tell God over and over and over constantly. In fact, the word says that he continually accuses man to God. And what he's saying is that you're not good enough, that you don't deserve God's love, that you don't deserve his grace, that you don't deserve his forgiveness, that you keep messing up. And some of these things are true. You deserve his, his love, but you don't necessarily, uh, but you do continue to mess up. Anybody continue to mess up? It's like constantly Satan has all kinds of ammunition to throw at God's people, and he brings it up to God all the time. They're guilty. Look at them. They just can't seem to get it together. They continue to do the wrong thing. They get it messed up in their minds and their lives. And he continues to bring that up to, to God. Uh, he's the accuser. And then we see that he also has this interesting thing. We didn't talk about this uh, last time, but that he has the fear of death. Have you heard that before? That Satan, one of his methods is to actually um, use the fear of death against you. So Hebrews chapter 2, 14 says this, says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now he's talking about the fact that you and I are human beings, that we're mortal, and that Jesus is going to become mortal. He's going to become a human being. He's going to become the Word made flesh um, because he's going to break the power of death. And here's what it says. He partook of the same, thing, same things that through death, a death on the cross, that he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay, that's a very interesting passage because what it's telling us is that Satan has the power of the fear of death at his disposal as one of his methods. How he uses it is like this. Most people are so terrified at the idea of dying that what do we do? We ignore the reality that we're going to die someday. We avoid thinking about it. In fact, if somebody... And he starts talking to you about your death. What do you think? You think that they are possibly morbid or maybe even homicidal. Like, why, why are you talking to me about my death? There's something wrong with that. I remember um, I've been called into many hospital rooms when people were in the active process of dying because of a terminal illness or a stroke that they'd had or something else. And family would call me in because they're like, this person is, is getting, to step, getting ready to step into eternity, and, and I want to make sure that they know the Lord. And so you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to walk into these situations. Um, I'm always a little nervous about it, but I, I'm, I'm going to step in. I remember one time I stepped into a hospital room. This guy was, was dying, and I mean, he would not talk about the fact that he was going to die. He did not want to think about it. It's like you're in a hospital room, you're basically on life support, and you still don't want to talk about the fact that you're going to die. Because why? The enemy loves to use this method of causing us to think that I, I won't die. And most people, they know that they're going to die. I mean, we're, we're all smart enough human beings to know that our life is finite and it will end at some point. And yet, most of us, even Christians, tend to put that thought way out of mind. I don't want to think about it. On top of that, one of the other things that Satan does um, is that he convinces people that 
even in the off chance that I might die someday, that uh, I'll definitely go to heaven. No matter what I believe, no matter what I think, no matter what I've done, no matter what my faith is, I'm definitely going to go to heaven because deep down, have you ever heard this before? Deep down, I'm a good person. Are, are you really a good person deep down? <laughs> so 99%, this is a, a, a poll that was taken several years back, 99% of people believe that they are going to go to heaven when they die. And here's how Satan has achieved his purpose. He has somehow um, been able to use this power of the fear of death to get people to ignore the idea that they're going to die and or to believe that if they were to die, that they would definitely go to heaven. Therefore, most people, 99% of people, do not sense a need for a Savior. So we're blind to the idea that there's anything wrong. And if you don't know that there's anything wrong, then you're not looking for a solution. Except for the fact that God continues to shine his light of revelation of himself and of his truth and his power into the world somehow through Christians, through his word, through uh, experiences that you have in your life that begin to awaken your heart and your mind to the reality that th that whole idea, there's something wrong in it. And I know that, that there's something that I was intended for that's bigger than anything that this world has to offer. And the pain of this life is too much, and I need God, and the things that I'm doing to try to self-medicate aren't working, and I need God, and there's things that I, I don't understand, and I need God. And people begin to come to a realization that no matter what the lies the enemy has put into this world, that there's still a sense that we need God. And I am hopeful that there are many, many more people that are still looking for how God wants to relate to them. So that's one of his tactics, but the one that we're going to deal with uh, as we just begin this sermon right now is, it's kind of a joke, okay, is temptation. Okay, so he, he works through deceit, he works through accusation, he works through fear, um, primarily he works as the tempter, okay? So what we saw in Matthew chapter 4 last week is the uh, time when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. It says that the devil or the tempter, it's one of his names. So his name is Satan, means enemy. His name is devil, means accuser. His name is tempter. It means that this is how he primarily works in people's lives, to tempt them, to uh, doubt God, tempt them to do things that are not God's way. And it says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So how is he tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin? Does, does, did Jesus have the same kinds of temptations that you have? Some say, yeah. But some say, well, he didn't deal with social media. He didn't deal with computers. He didn't deal with uh, road rage. He didn't deal with, you know, um, a lot of the things that I deal with. So how is he tempted in every way? Let me give you the big four 
ways that we are tempted, okay? One is pride. Pride is to exalt yourself. Jesus had the temptation to exalt himself. Now, he would naturally have that, that inclination because he was God in the flesh. If anybody in the world deserved to be glorified in this world, it would have been Jesus. Would you agree? I mean, he was all-knowing. He was all-powerful. He was God in the flesh. He was perfect. You could say to exalt himself would have been the easiest thing in the world. And yet, what does it say about him? It says that he humbled himself to the point of complete obedience and, in fact, to the point of death on the cross, that he was the most humble, meaning that he was the most dependent that anyone has ever been on his Father in heaven. Even though he had the power to be completely dependent on himself, he refused to do that. So he was tempted in pride. He was tempted in pleasure. Pleasure means to gratify yourself. This is what Satan was saying to him about turning the, the stone into bread. But just gratify yourself. Just please yourself. Just do whatever you want for you, and don't worry about what God wants for you. So we're all tempted in, in these ways to, to gratify ourselves. Um, pain seems like a strange way to tempt somebody, but um, do you experience pain? Physical pain, um, emotional pain, relational pain, um, mental pain. I mean, we have all kinds of things that are, are, we're struggling with. Um, and what pain is, is the temptation to pity yourself. And how that works is that it's always going to be somebody else's fault. Your, your pain, whatever you're going through, um, number one, Satan will, will try to get you to blame God. It's God's fault. Why did he let this happen to you? He's perfect, and he's all-powerful, and he's all-good. So therefore, anything bad coming into your life, uh, God allowed to come into your life, so therefore God is at fault, and you can blame him, and you can be unhappy and... and uh, mad at God for whatever's happened in your life. And so the, the temptation of pain is to pity yourself or it's somebody else's fault, all those people. If they would have just done this, I wouldn't be in this place. If they would have helped me out here, if they would have paid more attention, if they had cared for me, if they would have supported me, then I wouldn't be in the place that I'm in. And, and it begins to be this overwhelming thing of anger and, content, and uh, contempt for the world or for God or for others or for family or for whatever situation you're in. And uh, it can be a real huge temptation. Um, and then there's passivity. Uh, passivity, I think, was uh, Adam's sin initially, where he is there with Eve when she eats of the fruit of the knowledge of, of good and evil. He's right there, and he should have been willing to be responsible to say no. Instead, he passively went along with other people's plans. And there's a temptation to just remove yourself or excuse yourself uh, from your responsibility. Uh, this is primarily, not entirely, but primarily a sin that men commit. Men are called to be leaders, strong, supportive, um, to be the providers in, in many ways uh, by God's call and by His appointment and direction and, and design. And many men are stepping back and being passive and letting other people lead and not taking their role as leaders. And it's a, it's a temptation because being in a, a, a leadership role is pressure and it's stressful and it can cause some anxiety and it'd be easier just to let somebody else do it. And guess what? 
You keep letting other people do it, and we have a huge vacuum of leaders. We see this in the church. We see it in society. We see it in families. There's a huge vacuum of leaders because many men are passive. So we're tempted in all these ways. Jesus was tempted in all these ways. Um, We're tempted in these ways. He did it yet without sin. Uh, We tend to um, fall into these temptations. And here's the thing, though. Jesus had an advantage. He did not have a sinful nature. You and I have an old sinful nature. You realize that? How many of you know that you have an old sinful nature? Okay, you know that. Okay. I have these, uh, these verses Somebody said something. What did they say? Mumbling under your breath. I hear you. (laughs) Romans 6.6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Ephesians 4.22, You are taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Colossians 3.9 and 10 says, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. Now, here's the thing is that there's a negative and there's a positive to this. We have an old sinful nature. Unfortunately, even though we are new creatures in Christ, that old nature is still there, it still exists. But what we're told in Scripture is that that old nature does not rule us, okay? It is not in control. It is not in charge. We're not slaves to it. Romans 6, 6 clearly tells us that the old self was crucified with Christ so that it might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You were a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to righteousness, basically, is what it's saying. That you're a new creature in Christ, meaning that when God looks at you, How many times have I said this? Every Sunday for 20 years. Okay. As a new creature in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees Christ in you. Okay. And and I said uh, before, okay, this is a little bit of a soapbox for me. um, And I'm not picking on anybody. Okay. This is just tends to be something that people say. But as a Christian, as a believer, you are no longer called a sinner. Okay? That's not your designation anymore. So when we call ourselves, well, I'm just a sinner. I'm just, okay, one sinner doing this or whatever the case may be. The idea, okay, that we are labeling ourselves as sinners means that what we're saying in our minds is we're giving ourselves an excuse to do the wrong thing instead of the right thing. Because when God sees you, he sees Christ in you. He sees a saint not a sinner. He sees perfection, not corruption. He sees glory, not dust. This is his perspective of you. He sees Christ in you. You're a new creature in Christ. So I don't call myself a sinner. I know that I'm, I still have that old nature and there's tendency to do the wrong thing and there's weakness and there's ignorance and there's all that stuff. I know that stuff is there, but I don't feed that. I'm feeding my relationship with God so that I can actually stand with him in strength, right? So we have this designation that God has called us saints. He's called us new creatures in Christ. He's called us the, his son. So you are a child of God, that you are one of his children. These are the things that the Bible tells you about yourself. So you, you begin to tell yourself the right things about yourself, and you're going to start living the way that God wants you to live. 
Okay, so 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us, okay, that I don't have to live in this perpetual state of weakness and sin and temptation where I'm just falling into all kinds of traps and doing the wrong thing over and over. What it says is no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. All the four big things, okay, pride and pleasure and pain and passivity, okay, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. Everybody deals with this stuff. This is why in Ephesians it says that your struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not necessarily talking about other people, like your struggle is not with that person that you're having a hard time with or your, your spouse that you're arguing with or your kid that's being disobedient. It's not about the coworker that's bothering you or the boss that's on your case or whatever, okay? Your, your battle is not with circumstances, not earthly circumstances, not with the things of this world. Your ultimate struggle is a spiritual struggle, okay? And what it says is God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, uh, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That passage has been twisted and miscommunicated and misunderstood by the church probably for 2,000 years, because what do we say when we talk about that passage? We don't use temptation. We talk about circumstance. It's the exact opposite of what this passage is actually talking about. God won't let any hard circumstance come into your life that you can't handle. You ever heard that before? That's a lie. God will constantly bring you into circumstances you cannot handle in order to show that he is able to handle them in your life. That you cannot and he can but you with God is a powerful team. You alone are weak and vulnerable. So he'll let you go through circumstance after circumstance after circumstance that's overwhelming, you can't handle, you can't even understand because he's going to come alongside and he's going to take care of it for you. But he says, join with me. What this is talking about is that temptation to do the wrong thing, God will always give you the way to escape that. How does he do that? How does he give you the power to escape the temptations that you and I face all the time? Here's what Ephesians tells us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He's saying, I will go to bat for you. I will provide salvation. I will do all the work. I will make you holy. I will give you the strength of the power of the Holy Spirit to understand God's word. I'll give you the power of the Holy Spirit to live out a life of grace. I'll give you forgiveness as often as you say that you've sinned. I will forgive you. I will stay close to you. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will be faithful to you forever. This is God's promise and his call. He says, come into a relationship with me, stay close, and I will give you all the strength and the power that you need to get through whatever comes into your life. And what Satan wants to do is to divide you from God. This is why the accusations are so powerful. This is why fear is so powerful. This is why guilt is so powerful, because what happens is, as a, as a believer, okay, now we're just talking about Christians for a moment. As a believer, uh, when you sin and you know the Holy Spirit gives you conviction in your heart about something that you've done that is wrong, the tendency to go back into your old nature is this. I've sinned against God. He's mad at me. He doesn't want me to be around him right now. You ever felt this way? 
I've let God down. I've disappointed him. He, he doesn't love me. He's not powerful. Whatever. Okay, you just begin to, to spin these bad thoughts into your mind over and over and over. And what it does is give Satan this little foothold where he can get in there and convince you that you've messed up so badly that God doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. Now, what happens over time, if you don't correct that through forgiveness, okay, and forgiveness comes by repentance. God, I'm sorry, forgive me. His grace is immediate. His mercies are new every morning. But if you don't correct it, what will happen is that you will sear your conscience, that you will stifle the Holy Spirit, and you will continue to go down this path, and you'll start to believe that whatever sin that you're committing is actually okay with God. You'll convince yourself that it's really not that bad. And now what has happened is that that little gap has become a huge chasm between you and God. Why that's so detrimental is because what it does is it doesn't take away your salvation, but it, it removes you from fellowship with God to where you don't feel his presence. And many Christians walk through years and years of their life with a little bit of faith and a huge gap in their experience. They don't feel God's presence. They don't sense that he's near to them. And then what happens is that the world looks at that person and Satan uses that in their life to convince them that Christianity is fake. It's not powerful. It's not true. It's not worth it. It's not reliable. Because look at all these Christians who are hypocrites. And they can point to person after person after person, co-worker, family, friend, who say that they're Christians and they live no differently than they live. And Satan says, see, it's not real. Or, yeah, they, they had a, a moment of something, but it'll, it'll wear off. It'll go away. Just wait. And it's interesting that so many people in the world that you and I know are just almost hoping that you and I will give up. Why is that? Why would anybody in the world want you to fail in your faith? It's because Satan would love for you to fail in your faith to convince them that it's not worth believing in. They're already rejecting it. They're already blind to it. So if they can have a little bit more evidence that it's really not necessary, then we can continue to believe that I'm really not going to die, and if I do die, I'm definitely going to go to heaven. And so God's method is interesting because it's, Satan has his method of division. God has his method of unity. He wants to bring you into a close connection with himself, Right? This is what he wants to do. He wants to welcome you into a relationship. He wants to build up his relationship with you, and he wants to make sure that you know that that will never stop. It's eternal, and it's permanent, and it's powerful, and he will always be with you, and he'll never leave you. And so here's what the Word says. Now, hold on. Before I get there, you have to understand this pattern of grace. Pattern of grace is this, that as soon as I know that I've failed or done something wrong or sinned, I immediately come to God and I say, God, I'm sorry about that. And if that happens a thousand times in a day, then God will forgive me every time. 
That his, his word promises as often as you come to him and seek forgiveness, he will give you forgiveness. Isn't that awesome? A thousand times a day, he'll forgive you every time. And then hopefully what happens is that over time, as you invest in this pattern with the Lord, that the next day, maybe it's only 999 times. And the next day, maybe it's only 998 times. And eventually, it's, it's only, you know, 500 times. <laughs> but you're constantly coming back to the Lord, and you're allowing Him to forgive you and wash you and cleanse you. And it's building that relationship with God so that over time, not only are you beginning to learn and understand His will, but you're actually agreeing with His will. Like your character begins to change, and now I don't even want to do those things that I used to think I could never not be addicted to. Here's what it says in Romans. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is praying for you right now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. But look, it said, who shall separate us? For your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you that you call us close, that you keep us close, that you want us close, that you've made it possible to be close, that we refuse to believe that you don't want us or that you don't love us or that you won't respond to us, Lord. We know that your word tells us that you are constantly beckoning, inviting, calling us to come close and to stay close. There's nothing that you don't know. There's nothing that you fear. There's nothing that you... I don't understand, Lord. We can bring any question, any problem, any pain, any sin, Lord. We can bring it all before your throne and give it to you, and you will receive it. You will cleanse it. You will change it. You will restore us, Lord. We give you thanks for that, Lord. We're just going to call the enemy for what he is. We're going to reveal his methods, Lord. We're going to call on your will and your word as, as you have promised that we know that we can depend on you to be true, to fulfill your promise to us. Help us to live in a way that honors you. God, we pray that you, your church would be filled with people who authentically just want to glorify you and put away any kind of mask or deception or or a false sense of, of, of righteousness, Lord, and just be honest so that we can help each other, Lord. But we pray that your spirit would do its work. Call us close. Keep us close in Jesus' name.
Amen. I want to invite you this morning. I know that <laughs> that's a lot probably to take, but the Lord wants to call you close. Amen. He's done everything in his power to invite you, and he is requesting, I want to say he's requiring that you have to take that next step, that there's something that you have to do to say, God, I'm going to trust this. And I can guarantee it, okay? If I can say it this way, I can guarantee if you step out in faith, he will respond to you. And I don't say that because, even my experience, I say that because that's what his word tells us. It's a guarantee. If you ask, he will give. Amen? So let's stand, let's sing, and if the Lord is calling you, would you come and and make that commitment this morning?